1: Hello, and welcome back to the New Books Network in Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Matt Brown, the host of the channel, currently a master's student at the University of Wyoming in the Department of History and American Studies, focusing on the history of environment and science. Today, we'll be talking with Alexander Menrisky about his new book Wild Abandon: American Literature and the Identity Politics of Ecology, published by Cambridge University Press in 2021 with uh, under their Cambridge Studies in American and Literature and Culture series. Despite the proliferation of scientific ecology in the second half of the 20th century emphasizing the interconnection between environment and humanity, Wild Abandon considers the intellectual genealogy of ecology with With the radical politics of the 1960s and 70s. This intellectual and literary history considers altered forms of the American wilderness narrative influenced by the ideas and vocabulary taken from psychoanalysis and various identity based social movements that emerged in this chaotic moment. By deep reading the works of Edward Abbey, Simon Ortiz, Toni Morrison, Margaret Atwood, and John Krakauer, among others, Dr. Menrinsky demonstrates how these authors either dramatized or undermined concepts of ecological authenticity within the Identity Politics of Ecology, or IPE. Put another way, IPE is a story of oscillation, a back and forth between writers attempting to shore up a narrative of ecological authenticity and those willing to question it. IPE's legacy continues in our current... Our contemporary environmental conversations, highlighted by concepts such as hashtag live authentic. Dr. Alexander Menrisky, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's 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 our pleasure for sure. So, um, per our our tradition, um, would you like to um, start off by by telling us a bit about yourself and your background? Absolutely. Uh, so. As you
0: said, um, I'm Alex Minriski. I'm assistant professor in English at the University of Connecticut, uh, where I teach pretty broadly in uh, writing, writing studies, environmental humanities, and uh, literary studies. Uh, I'm actually coming uh, to the University of Connecticut um, uh, this fall, fall of 2021. uh, For the past three years, I've been uh, teaching at the University of Massachusetts, uh, Dartmouth, uh, right around the corner. Uh, I, uh, completed my master's degree and my PhD in English at the university of Kentucky. Uh, and my undergraduate degree is in journalism, uh, from Ohio university. Um, and kind of, uh, throughout, uh, those years of my uh, education and also prior kind of, uh, questions of environment and identity were always at the forefront of my mind. Um, I grew up in Southern Ohio, uh, though I'm from up, upstate New York, uh, and uh, I I grew up uh, closeted and uh, in a community that I uh, perceived as being a kind of somewhat hostile. <laughs> so, um, really, growing up, there were kind of uh, uh, two places I often turned to sort of deal with that uh, that childhood and young adulthood. Uh, one was, uh, I think, like a lot of people, uh, literature reading, and the other was uh, I was fortunate enough to grow up uh, in a house that backed up to a lot of uh, uncultivated land, uh, a, a lot of forested, uh, forested land. And uh, kind of spending time away from people was, was a way that I really kind of uh, 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 coped with uh, growing up closeted where I was. Um, so kind of all of these things together, my interest in literature, my interest in um, non-human nature, and also, I think really centrally, uh, my interest in identity, what it meant to be closeted in a place I perceived as being hostile, um, and uh, what relationship there was between uh, that identity or lack thereof and uh, uh, non human spaces. All three of these things kind of have really informed my career thus far. Most of what I'm really interested in studying or have been interested in studying to is specifically. Um, the stories people tell about the relationships with non-human environment and specifically uh, how those stories are relevant to other stories people are telling about uh, who they are, uh, whether that means self-identity or identity uh, along social vectors such as race, gender, sexuality, class, what have you.
1: Very good. Well, thank you for sharing that. I mean, there's some really just powerful, powerful things in there that, um, that I appreciate you being able to, to, to share now. And, and it's, 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 it's awesome that you're able to, um, able to find such a fascinating intersection, um, that, that you're obviously very passionate about, um, so uh, on that note, how did you actually come to this particular topic um, that you that you write about in, in Wild Abandon? Because it's it's super fascinating and, and, and very nuanced the way you the way you approach identity, um, environment, ecology and, and, and narrative.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So so as you as you kind of mentioned, so what this book is is really about is um, it's really about the different ways in which a variety of writers, activists, uh, politicians, intellectuals, a variety of folks have kind of uh, rhetorically identified them uh, identified not with, um, you know, uh, not with uh, 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 specific categories along lines of gender. Or race or ethnicity, or even uh, not even identifying with with a self, an idea of themselves, but identifying with environment as a whole, kind of a kind of a making a, an identity out of uh, James Lovelock's Gaia, thinking about uh, not just the planet as a single organism, but thinking uh, presenting themselves as um, so continuous with that organism that there is no distinction, um, and that's a rhetorical move. Um, Uh, and i was really interested in in how that kind of tendency of 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 identifying uh, rhetorically identifying with environment as a whole with with a given ecosystem as a whole i was really interested in where that came from uh why it was circulating in a variety of places uh places as dissimilar as for example uh social ecology theory on the one hand and instagram on the other um and uh from my part, I mean, this kind of, uh, the project really kind of emerged from that personal history I mentioned about um, kind of growing up in a situation where I felt uh, really uncomfortable with kind of the human environment I was in, but felt really, really close to the non-human environment I had uh, at my, just at, you know, uh, out my back door. Um, and one of the things I really, that kind of really resonated with me as I was growing up was uh, the book. Into the Wild, about uh, Chris McCandless, uh, the young man who died in Alaska in the 1990s. Uh, John Krakauer uh, wrote the book. It was later, uh, uh, there was a film by Sean Penn in 2007. Um, And I remember reading it when I was very young. And something that really resonated with me was that over and over again, this figure uh, Chris McCandless in his journals and letters is, is really making this move. He's identifying with the whole ecosystem. And this is something that just really appealed to me as, um, as a kid who was desperate to turn anywhere for some kind of sense of, uh, some kind of sense of belonging, some sort of sense of identity that I was not getting from the community I lived in. Um, uh, so really, as I kind of became older and and as I uh, became really invested uh, from a scholarly perspective in questions of environment and identity, the more critical my uh, perspective became, the more critical I was of this kind of really uh, totalizing narrative of identifying with the whole ecosystem. I began asking more questions like, okay, so uh, what would kind of the effect of this sort of narrative of identity be? You know, I, I became kind of taking stock of really important criticisms of Chris McCandless himself. Um, And so as time went on, I became, that that was kind of what gave birth to my interest in specifically, okay, so I've noticed this really, really popular text, End of the Wild, culturally ubiquitous. It's the only book I've ever taught that 100% of my students already recognize the name of before coming to class, which to me is really incredible As, as a professor in the humanities. Um, oftentimes uh, uh, you meet a wall of blank faces when you introduce them to a new text. And I really mean every student, you know, and in, I in, in, in taught in, 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 um, in university contexts with, with very uh, diverse student populations. And that makes it all the more incredible that it was this kind of huge touchstone. I was like, okay, so we have this really, really popular culturally ubiquitous text and it really revolves around this figure who's constantly making these appeals to this sort of melding of his psyche uh, in an identitarian way with his surroundings, refusing to draw a distinction between his self and his environment. And that was when I started thinking, okay, I'm you know I bought into this narrative when I was younger. I really want to know where it came from. I really want to kind of try to figure out how this way of talking about our human relationship with the environment came about because it is only one among many ways of talking about human relationships with the environment. Of course, but I was really curious and kind of thinking more about it uh, since it had kind of proven so culturally ubiquitous, and since it had been uh, really formative to me myself, also.
1: Yeah, that's a really good answer, and I, I, I mean, and and to get kind of into, into the argument deeper, where, when did you, uh, when did you arrive at this, this critique of, um, of, um, psychoanalysis and, and building in Freud's narrative with, with the, uh, with the environmental movement?
0: Right. So that was kind of, um, it started sort of as a happy accident. It was something, I I mean, the short version of the story is I, um, I needed to take a theory class in graduate school, and psychoanalysis was being offered, and and I just took it. Um, and I ended up really loving it. I, I mean, it, I I I've been very critical of many aspects of psychoanalysis, um, in my reading and in my writing. Uh, but I I just I I it's one of those things I can't necessarily explain why I just find it. Um, intensely enjoyable to read. I just, I, I love reading psychoanalytic theory. I find it so fascinating, um, even if I oftentimes um, question a lot of it and, 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 um, and join many other scholars and having good reasons to critique much of it. I just, I find reading it so compelling. Um, and as I said, it was sort of a happy accident. I mean, me reading, it, it being in that psychoanalysis class sort of coinciding with me starting to notice in the kind of literary environmentalism I was reading, that a lot of the psychoanalytic terminology, not that Freud not only used, but also that writers in the 60s and 70s, which was a period of American uh, cultural history that I, I, I was always very interested in, and that was really what I, I, I focused on um, in my graduate study. I, that was I, my PhDs in American literature and, and post World War II American literature, was really what I was most interested in. So I was really reading a lot in this, in this time frame. Um, what I started to notice was that, um, so uh, psychoanalysis was heavily influential to the social theory of uh, the 1950s and sixties. That was really animating the new left, uh, the free speech movement, student movement, uh, writ large, the counter American counterculture writ large. Um, a lot of Freud's terminology was being, um, recycled uh in these movements they were drawing a lot of their inspiration they were basing a lot of what these social movements were basing a lot of what they thought or what they envisioned for a more uh equitable liberated society uh they were expressing that using vocabulary that they were taking from social theory by writers such as herbert marcusa eric Fromm, uh gezer roheim uh figures who themselves were uh Interpreting psychoanalysis. They were joining psychoanalysis with uh, Marxist theory largely. And that was when I started noticing, okay, a lot of this same psychoanalytic terminology, it keeps popping up in the literary environmentalism that I'm reading. It keeps popping up in uh, poetry and essays by Gary Snyder. It keeps popping up in uh, works of uh, early ecofeminist writing. Uh, It keeps popping up in uh, deep ecological philosophy. It's popping up all over the place in all these environmental texts. And I was kind of like, I don't think I've read anything scholarly about this. I don't think I've read anything that really kind of honed in on the presence of psychoanalytic vocabulary across kind of disparate corners of environmental thought in this era. And just because of uh, where my head was uh, uh, at the time, I, I... it, the the timing to me, chronologically, among all these texts did not seem to be an accident, uh, right? Um, I mean, most of these environmentalist writers were writing on the heels of the new left and broader counterculture in the 60s and 70s. A lot of them had taken part in uh, activities related to those movements. Um and uh, so that's where my, my kind of interest in the, the psychoanalytic terminology kind of came about. Um, again, I was in graduate school, and this is where I became really interested, in, more interested critically in Into the Wild than I had been when I was younger. And that was when you know I, I, was, I was looking at this text again, and I was like, you know what, a lot of the way McCandless is talking about himself, and a lot of the way Krakower is talking about McCandless talking about himself is recycling a lot of these psychoanalytic narratives. So I was starting to kind of put these pieces together, uh, seeing these kind of connections, these links among all of these texts, you know, broader social theory of the 60s, uh, political speech in the 60s and 70s, um, environmentalism of a variety of stripes. Um, and kind of that psychoanalytic vocabulary was sort of the breadcrumb trail, you know, because those were, the, those were the things I was really picking up on and seeing in a variety of places. And I was thinking, okay, so whatever McCainless thinks, even if he doesn't always use a psychoanalytic vocabulary, it's really clear to me as a reader at this point, that um the narrative he's telling the story he's telling about his relationship to the natural world that narrative is kind of resting on this psychoanalytic framework that writers before him had already been using
1: you got to love those happy accidents i mean that's that's so profound that that you know you're able to really st- see those the that terminology and really the the I guess the maybe epistemology that is just embedded through this 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 long this long lineage starting in the in the in the sixteens and seventies with this with this really this 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 union. Um and and I guess I mean I that that kind of leads us to just The idea of, so you have the new left's politics of authenticity, um, as as you demonstrate in the, like the Port Huron statement in the, uh, in the introduction, Mm -hmm. which, which signals that alienation from a, from a natural system that is kind of this fixed essentialized identity that, that begins to be questioned, um, in, in like these later generations or, or at least by the, at least by the 1970s, um. But so, so how do we, how, like, I guess, could you go in further into like this, this idea of like identity politics of ecology and how, how authenticity and alienation really, really play into that and, or just go beyond, um, beyond that?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And, and of course, as you said, this is sort of the kind of core of the argument, but yeah, I kind of, in many ways worked backwards to kind of, of uh, uh, seeing these things coming together, psychoanalysis, the new left, um environmentalism and I kind of worked backwards by following the psychoanalytic terminology and all of these different works. Um, so I, I'll start by saying a little bit more about the student movements of the sixties in general. Um, they were really, uh, responding a lot to, um, things like, um, uh, writers like C. Wright Mills, uh, right. Uh, you, you know, like white collar, uh, William H. White's Organization Man. Um, Herbert Marcuse's One Dimensional Man, this kind of outpouring of critical theory in the 1950s um, that emerged in large part as, as, as sort of a, a critique of, uh, of capitalism that was also really linked to a lot of these writers' fears of of totalitarianism that was born from the fact that many of them had, had lived through and, and fled from um, Germany, uh, uh, before or during World War II, um, they're really uh, interested in kind of um, the question of okay, so h- how does um, a society become authoritarian? How does it become authoritarian culturally? You know, um, how does it become authoritarian through a variety of, of social means? Um, and they were really interested in exploring this question um, from the perspective of psychoanalysis because. Freud had written quite a lot about kind of mass psychology, you know, uh, group psychology and the analysis of the ego, for example. Uh, Freud's later works, because he himself had kind of fled uh, fled uh, the expansion of, of the Third Reich, his later work was really interested in, okay, first of all, um, how do uh, societies, civilizations form? And second of all, uh, um, what relationship does that have to the way the ego forms the individual psyche um, and, and kind of third um, what role does this play in kind of the rise perhaps of charismatic leaders such as Adolf Hitler and, and this was kind of a point of departure for a lot of social theorists writing in the 1950s so a lot of them are really worried about kind of huge cultural systems that that when you take a step back might appear totalitarian. Uh, because they're so far reaching, they're really interested in kind of ana- analyzing kind of mass culture, um, from the perspective of both psychoanalysis and Marxism to think about how, okay, capitalism and psychology were working together to promote mass cultures, you know, that could per- potentially be turned to authoritarian means, um, and they were worried about this. So they're really thinking about, okay, so how do we, do we, do we find resources in a combination of Marxist and psychoanalytic theory to help us, you know, dismantle the sort of alienation and conformity we see arising, we can see re- arising from a mass-produced culture. Um this was something that resonated a lot with the student movement. Um, really the the kind of, kind of cliche is to say that, Oh, in the 1960s, um, you had the civil rights movement and then you had a bunch of kind of white middle-class students just railing against conformity. Um, uh, even though they didn't have anything to complain about, that's kind of the cliche. Um, so uh, in, in, while there's some truth to that, in reality, most of the student movement kind of got its start through civil rights struggles, um, and they were really interested in the idea of political alienation, uh, specifically the political alienation of, of people of color. Uh, but also, many of them were great avid readers of these social theorists, and so they began to think about political alienation also in terms of psychic alienation. How is social oppression linked to psychic repression. And so for the new left, which was a student movement, um, really kind of centered on this um, uh, this series of linked organizations of Students for a Democratic Society in the United States. um, For the new left, uh, the question became, okay, how do we not only create more equitable democratic social structures, but also in doing so, is it possible also to strip away layers of repression on the psyche that our repressive culture has kind of heaped upon us, you know, how would recovering an authentic social organization uh, enable us to become more authentic people, authentic selves. Uh, And this is what um, a scholar, I I quite admire Doug Rossano wrote a book "A politics of authenticity. And it's kind of all about this period and, and these movements, right. You know, thinking about, okay, Uh, a relationship between direct democracy and um, liberated psyches. You know, that the idea was that, okay, so um, Freud wrote in Civilization and Its Discontents that um, as you enter into social contract with people um, over time, um, you have to repress, your, your psyche represses its desires more and more to shield itself from potential harm the more you're coming into contact with other people, you know? To protect itself. So, these uh, social theorists and then these students were basically suggesting okay, if we relaxed the hold civilization had on us, maybe we would also be able to access a truer psyche buried beneath all the layers of the ego. So, kind of recovering authentic selves was really central to that political project. It was a political project, but it, it was really aimed at this idea of authenticity, authentic selves. The the singular authentic self became kind of the most valued subject among many in the new left. So the students for democratic society kind of really enshrined these values in the Port Huron Statement, which you mentioned, which was kind of its founding document in 1962. It just so happens that that very same year, Rachel Carson published uh, Silent Spring. Uh, And it's really hard to overstate uh, the extent to which Silent Spring Really altered the way uh, lay people understood human relationships to environment. Um, Rachel Carson really brought the science of ecology to a mainstream audience for a first time. It was a scientific discipline for you know decades prior, but it wasn't necessarily kind of a topic of mainstream conversation. Ecology was not a household word, neither was ecosystem. But Rachel Carson kind of brings it to the forefront because she's this this work, Silent Spring, is really kind of shattering the notion that there's a stark divide between nature and culture, nature and civilization. That boundary could ever have been said to exist. It was always porous. You know, uh, ecology is all about the science of interconnection. Um, And so, more and you know, as the idea of uh, toxins uh, making that ostensible divide even more porous entered the political imagination kind of uh, quite um, rapidly because people became really concerned about things like pesticides etc it became an object of political concern this was something the new left started to grapple with as well um, especially because it was really concerned with quality of life issues but that concept of ecology kind of conflicted it may it, it really kind of conflicted with that kind of inviolable authentic self that uh many of the new left's leaders kind of held in cardinal esteem, this idea that 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 there is an authentic self for everybody. Because ecology, the notion of ecology undermines the idea that there ever could be a singular, independent, stable, authentic self. Because we of course we we rely on countless, innumerable other organisms to live just to begin with. And that's even before we have to eat anything, you know, without Without gut flora, you know, nothing would happen, so, for example. You know, and, and then, of course, you know, after we die, we contribute to the ecosystem in turn. So ecology kind of uh, rubbed up against this idea of uh, personal authenticity because it undermined the notion that there ever could be a singular authentic self. But as the 1960s wore on, the new left really started to fracture. A lot of its membership was really interested in. Questions of environment, especially because it, it was a quality of life issue. Um, it, it, um, it, you know, it was in the early seventies that most of our t- today are still most major environmental legislation emerged in that era. It's a little outdated at this point. We have new concerns, of course, that are not being addressed as quickly. But um, uh, but uh, but at the time, you know, much of that uh, legislation happened. Then it was a bit. It was it was a big political topic. Uh, And a lot of uh, the new left, as it fractured, as the movement fractured, a lot of its membership really gravitated toward environmental questions. Some of them involved themselves with the back to the land movement by our regionalism. Some of them entered my kind of more conventional uh, environmental law. But it was it was kind of a hot thing for a lot of new left alums to throw themselves into. And a lot of them took kind of a a slightly different route than kind of a more conventional uh, environmental law. Uh, perspective. And that was an attempt to kind of reconcile this value of authenticity with uh, the idea of ecology. And through those works of social theory I talked about a little bit ago, um, they kind of reasoned, a lot of these folks were reasoning sort of like, okay, so the idea is if we stri- keep stripping back layers of repression, we'll arrive at a more and more authentic self, a more and more authentic ego. Uh, but in Freud's original theory, his whole uh, civilization, and it's discontents. One of the arguments he makes is that, okay, originally uh, in infancy, people don't have a sense of self. Uh, they experience, infants experience life kind of coterminously. You know, there is no distinction between self and other because uh, an ego hasn't formed yet. You know, there's just this kind of indissoluble mass of experience of life of as some of these new left alums started reasoning of ecology. And so the idea became, okay, well, if you can strip back the ego's repressions to find a more and more authentic ego, if you stripped it back far enough, you might eventually return to a state where there was no ego at all. The most authentic state, the most authentic psychic state would be one of kind of co-terminality with the environment around you. A co-terminality is the wrong word. I don't even know if even that's an actual word. It, it sounds like it means something like dying together, uh, but which actually could be you know, a second meaning for this because as I explore in the book, a lot of what this logic led to was a lot of ecological philosophers kind of saying stuff like, it doesn't matter if we die because we're all part of the same body anyway, which doesn't necessarily open up any room for a political discussion of things like social inequities, right? You know, it kind of, um, it, and I, maybe I'm kind of getting ahead of the question a little bit, but, um, you know, long story short, uh, these uh, figures sort of kind of blended ecology with this politics of authenticity to argue that, so the most authentic self isn't a self at all. It's, it's a return to the state of kind of subjective continuity with the world around you. My suggestion throughout the book is that the reason this is not the best perspective on human relationship with the environment um, is that um, it, it, it kind of uh, it doesn't give us any principled reason to think about things such as environmental injustice, for example. Because a lot of these figures were some of them quite explicitly, some of them more implicitly, but some of them quite explicitly were saying, "Okay, well." Um, Compared to uh, the destruction that's being done to our whole body of the earth, our most authentic self, um, social issues are artificial by comparison. You know, A natural self is the ecosystem. Identities along lines of gender, race, ethnicity, um, while historically contingent, are still very important because uh, they're generated socially, materially. And they have social and material effects, very inequitable effects. Um, this sort of reasoning about the relationship to an environment, um, and of course, it, it, it's worth saying that of course this was this is a rhetorical appeal, a rhetorical appeal to total identification with the environment. Because of course, um, you know, no one could possibly sit down to write about the dissolution of the themselves, the dissolution of the subject I without starting from an I to begin with. You know, you can't say, I'm losing my ego without using the word I, right? So it's a rhetorical move. It's a rhetorical appeal to kind of this, this environmental subjectivity, what I call ecological authenticity, use that term. Um, the problem with that is that it sort of reinstates that nature culture divide, despite the fact that ecology kind of breaks that divide down, it reinstates it not in spatial terms as in like okay you know civilization here in the city versus nature out there in the wilderness but in psychic terms right that there's a natural self which is no self versus the artificial selves which would be the ego the the, the kind of socially mediated ego or identities along the lines of gender race etc these folks were kind of in this case, framing those sorts of identitarian problems as being merely artificial and, you know, implicitly unimportant by comparison, uh, which in many ways was leaving, especially people of color who tend to bear the brunt of environmental injustices by the wayside. That was a very long answer. I apologize. No, it's,
1: it's super, super interesting. And... Uh... <laughs> co-terminality, I think you can just like TM that and, you know, claim the, <laughs> claim the rights to it. If, if somebody hasn't already, cause I, 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 definitely, uh, I definitely dig it. Um, and I mean, there's just like, there's so much, there's so many directions we, we can go here because it's, it's so interesting that, I mean, just, just thinking of that you can strip away this, this, this repression, to to find an authentic self and and then like meld with a with an authentic ecology also misses the point of like the fact that ecology in itself isn't static and it's it's always changing as well. So how can you even like identify that and and I and I feel like I mean just to just to kind of move ahead um, in your first chapter, I feel like with with um, what Edward Abbey and 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 maybe even Buchen. We're trying to grapple with where where these these ideas of of what what ecology is and and mm-hmm. how to how to really find find your find themselves in mm-hmm. in what they considered wilderness and then like mm-hmm. find that authentic authenticity in there is that Is that a correct read?
0: Oh, I think so, absolutely. I think the way I'm approaching those writers in chapter one is, okay, these are people writing in the 1960s, at least the text that I'm really looking at while uh, a lot of figures are, are, are starting to play around with these ideas, and, and they both are navigating them a little bit, Bookchin's doing it a lot more critically than most, including Abby. Although my argument is that Abby can be faulted for a lot. Um, uh, he was horribly racist, um, pretty badly sexist, a lot of stuff. But I do think he was kind of critical on this question, a lot more so than a lot of his contemporaries. I think Bookchin was even more so. My criticism of Bookchin is sort of that, okay, I think his argument is more or less right, but he keeps in certain instances trying to scaffold it over a psychoanalytic terminology that was that kind of resulted in in the same logic. You know, he he was he was he was trying to use psychoanalytic vocabulary almost because it was hip at the time and he knew it would speak to people. But my kind of point is that the way folks were using this psychoanalytic terminology at the same time kind of made inevitable this sort of narrative about an identity that is coterminous with, you know, one's surroundings um, by virtue of the way that vocabulary function. Because, you know, psychoanalysis, of course, doesn't just provide a vocabulary, psychoanalytic terminology, they're all linked, right? It's, you know, there have been a variety of, of, of kind of waves and schools in psychoanalysis but um, these terms are always related in some sort of psychic structure, whatever it is that the psychoanalyst is arguing right So uh, Bookchin and kind of mapping his own points about human relationships to ecology over this sort of hip psychoanalytic structure, was just replicating the arguments he was trying really admirably to deconstruct. And I think in many cases he did really, really fabulously. Um, I think the thing that Bookchin gets really right early on as he's critiquing uh, folks at this time is that um, his whole point is basically like, you know, of course, um, you know, things like race and gender. And, and, and he, he often talked about how um, he was... Um he wrote often about how he, he, he chose the path of anarchism and not communism, because he felt that to date, when he was writing, communist and, and and also socialist movements had largely um, you know, they tried to dismantle class-based hierarchies, but they'd kind of kept intact racial and gender hierarchies. And I, I, one thing that I really respect about Bookchin is that he was saying that and making that critique at a time where very, very few people, especially white men, were doing it. And what I really find valuable about the fact that he was doing that at the time that he was writing about ecology is he was kind of making the point, okay, yeah, things like gender and race, identities along lines of gender and race, and hierarchies along these things. Sure, these are socially mediated. They form historically, but that doesn't make them any less real. They have material causes and they have material effects, which are themselves part of the, the ecosystems we live in, right? So his the way he would, I, I read him as kind of countering is basically by saying that when you reduce an argument about environment to questions of identity in essentialist terms, you're reiterating a nature culture divide in terms of identity rather than kind of spatially, you know, in a way that, that, that makes it possible for you to say things like uh, racial issue, racial politics, gender politics, uh, sexual politics. These are just artificial concerns. They're not natural concerns. Because those identities aren't natural. They're artificial. They are like the ego. You know, they're built up by society. We should be going deeper, you know? And Bookchin was not really having that. You know, he was saying they they are real because we can't just pretend history didn't exist. We're living in this moment, you know, and like how can we how can we reconcile these social identities and social issues with these very important ecological concerns without kind of reducing everything once again to an erroneous nature culture divide, whether it's along spatial terms or, or psychic ones.
1: Yeah, that, that's a great answer. And, and, and going off of that, one thing that, that this book really uh, showed me or revealed to me that I, I just had never really thought about it before was, was how, like, this psychoanalytical narrative plays into kind of the, the enlightenment and the essentialism that's like created Mm -hmm. by the universal enlightenment, um, in, in terms of, of, of trying to define these different relations and, 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 and that nature and culture divide in particular. Um, and, and I really think that the, the idea, that rejection of, of, um, a lot of these, these, um, these early i guess environmental thinkers and this kind of points to to chapter 2 with with the rejection of the artificial mm-hmm. is is where you uh where where you really find how mm-hmm. that they how they threw through the the use of psycho mm-hmm. psychedelics and mm-hmm. and trying to get back to the to the earth or trying to get back to to nature through through that avenue mm-hmm. um especially ideal i i, I Idolizing East Asian and Indigenous peoples mm-hmm. oversimplified and erased those people while they were doing that. Is that is that kind of what you were trying to get at in chapter two?
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. And I'll also just add before I kind of you know respond more to that is that you know you brought up that great point about how in this context psychoanalysis was serving these sort of essentialist ends. And what I really want to point out is that psychoanalysis and ecology are both deeply anti-essentialist heuristics. You know, they're deeply they are they're really committed to illustrating interconnections. But as as somebody who, who frequently who often teaches in writing and rhetoric, what I'm always kind of emphasizing is that um what matters almost more than those ideas themselves is how they're being mobilized, how they're being talked about. And while I think psychoanalysis and ecology are deeply anti-essentialist, the way they were being used, talked about, and combined produced deeply essentialist rhetorical effects, right, that kind of had, that, that, that kind of led to this, this sort of like dismissal of social identity positions and politics, you know, more importantly, social struggle as being artificial concerns, you know, which is just a way of downplaying them. Um, I, I think what you're referring to in the second the second chapter, especially, is this kind of interesting thing. That happens in in the 1970s, especially um, because, you know, as I said, a a lot of the time in this discourse, this identity politics of ecology, um, there's this downplaying of racial difference or, or gender difference as being beside the point, or again, artificial is a word that comes up a lot, except for this sort of privileged place that a lot of these writers are setting aside for um, indigenous populations, especially Native Americans, but not only, I do mean kind of indigenous populations um, worldwide. Okay. Cause uh, in the same era, um, you know, I write about Peter Matheson. I write about Gary Snyder. These much like Abby and Bookchin are people who at times are writing really uncritical stuff, but, you know, Matheson especially kind of comes back later and is like, I've learned a lot more. I can't believe I said that I've thought about it, it, which is very, very admirable, of course, but, you know, there's a sort of privileged spot set aside for indigenous peoples. Um, uh, and, and, um, particularly native Americans, but, but also for, for writers like Matheson also, um, Tibetans and other, um, East Asian, um, um, East Asian, uh, peoples. Um, so, um, Really, for, for a writer like Matheson or Snyder, as I said, they're a little more critical. There are a lot of other writers who are not. Um, these figures, even though uh, at the time there were there was like the Red, Red Power movement, American Indian movement, uh, there were Native American uh, individuals and movements that were really vocally um, claiming their uh their lives as illustrative of a of a social position, an identity position born of the material conditions uh they lived with. Um these were people who were kind of arguing it for arguing for um indigenous rights, indigenous sovereignty as um a major sociopolitical issue, right? In the same way that so that that um black American civil rights was, in the same way that the women's liberation movement was. Um, You know, all that political stuff, these environmental writers preferred to ignore, right? All this, anything that suggested a, a kind of socially mediated identity position, they liked to ignore. Instead, they were working with this hyper romanticized image of the indigenous peoples, Native Americans in particular, as one with their surroundings, you know, and, and I think this is, a, this is a narrative and an image a lot of people are familiar with, this romanticization of Native peoples as being like psychically melded to environment, to, to the ecosystem. And this is something that a lot of writers at the time were really celebrating, even though it was deeply inaccurate and completely ignored the actual material conditions of Native peoples due to ongoing effects of settler colonialism um and and it, it's a kind of view of of native american peoples that relies on this completely ridiculous assumption um that that native american lifeways are not themselves based on millennia of cultural practice cultural production right it's this this idea that uh, Native peoples are somehow extracultural, and that's why they should be valued. And again, that's a way of ignoring the actual political, uh, sociopolitical issues facing Native communities in the U.S. Um, and there were writers um, such as uh, somebody I write about at length, Terence McKenna, a big early proponent of ayahuasca and psilocybin and mescaline. A lot of the writers who were really promoting psychedelics at the time, specifically organic hallucinogens, you know, like peyote, mushrooms, um, marijuana to a lesser extent, um, and LSD to a lesser extent because it was synthetic, right? But things like ayahuasca, uh, peyote, things that could be, uh, things that were derived uh, from the natural world, things that you could just, uh, you know, pick and brew, Uh they were really enamored specifically of these because their argument was essentially um, that uh, ingesting, imbibing, what have you, organic hallucinogens and kind of experiencing that consciousness expansion. That was the, f- the famous phrase used by Timothy Leary, uh, the big LSD proponent. Um, this consciousness expansion was just actually a way of recovering that infantile sense of oneness with the world. That that consuming psychedelics uh, wasn't only about stripping back the layers of the ego, but stripping back them back in a way that you were literally melding with the ecosystem. You know, the plant was melding with your brain, and their suggestion was 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 that um, indigenous peoples just live like that all the time, uh, which was another way of kind of infantilizing indigenous peoples through a back door in the same way. That kind of settler colonial discourse has been doing for centuries. You know, it's just another way of infantilizing, of suggesting that Indigenous peoples are somehow extra cultural. This may have been a celebratory instance of that sort of rhetoric, uh, but but still kind of uh, deeply, deeply, um, for lack of a better word, inequitable, unfair, and, and again, uh, sort of an excuse to ignore the actual material and political. Conditions and struggles uh, that uh, that Native peoples uh, were facing, uh, had been facing for centuries, and continue to face. Um, And and, and, and to my mind, you know, recently, you know, restrictions on psychedelic research, uh, restrictions on psychedelic use, have progressively been lifting for about the past fifteen to twenty years, and you see, um, you know, the praises being sung for organic hallucinogens, even in places like Vogue magazine, you know, really high profile publications, you know, are singing the praises. And they're sort of repeating the same talking points as the McKenna's did, saying really similar things such as, you know, oh, it returns you to an infantile state of mind. It's a literal subjective merging with environment. Um, Oh, it's this Originary, well kept indigenous secret, and and, and it kind of beat by beat the same t- narrative talking points that uh, counterculturalists, white settler counterculturalists, were telling about indigenous peoples in a way that stripped indigenous peoples of their really complex histories of cultural production that are ongoing. Um, and, and again, serves served almost as an excuse to ignore the actual uh, political uh, situation uh, facing uh, Native peoples. So um, that's something that I just really want to emphasize is not old or not defunct, right? Those, those same talking points are still coming back. And, and you know, and I want to be really clear, too, that I actually I find the um, growing openness to hallucinogens a, a good thing. But again, it kind of comes back to okay, how are we talking about them, and what rhetorical effects does that way of talking about them have? It's one thing to praise hallucinogens as many are doing as being a really promising treatment for addiction, for example. You know, because we can talk about them, um, you know, biochemically. You know, they're interfacing uh, uh, with the brain in a way that is helping to uh, kind of. Uh, uh, I, I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not a chemist, right? I'm not an organic chemist, but, but from what I understand, uh, these, uh, these substances interact with the brain in such a way that is helping to uh, erase or remove other chemical compounds that have formed that, produ- that cause addiction. You know, that's really promising. That's great. That's a very different thing than saying, Oh, uh, ingesting hallucinogens um, makes me indigenous. Right. That's a very different, it's a very different way of, of explaining what they do. Um, so, uh, so yeah, you know, those writers who who were really singing the praises of both psychedelics and indigenous peoples, you know, they weren't, they weren't um, interested in indigenous peoples for their, their cultural production or for their, their, um, their, 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 um, their campaigns for sovereignty. They were interested in them only in as they saw them all being identical, rather than a variety, a, a, a huge variety of different indigenous cultural traditions. They saw them as this sort of monolithic, homogenized population of <laughs> ego-free infants, which, when you say it out loud, sounds awful, right? So, um, and that was the way uh, that was the way many people were framing it. You know that that psychedelics were a way of of manifesting that ecological authenticity and that indigenous peoples were automatically ecological, ecologically authentic, because they lacked the sort of repressions that civilization imposed on Western peoples, which is also just another way of, of <laughs> pretending settler colonialism didn't happen you know and didn't happen and uh and 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 influence you know native peoples right so um that that's that whole kind of trend in the way people talk about hallucinogens and and kind of the link it has to this this sort of uh, rhetoric of ecological authenticity that's something I, um, I i feel very strongly about especially because um it's still so prevalent you know especially as hallucinogens become more widely accepted
1: yeah, and that's it's it's really important um, that 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 conversation about about how this language is being used and how these narratives are being effectively consumed mm-hmm. um, it, it essentially puts what what you were saying essentially puts indigenous people in like Marx's you know, first nature or whatever and and that mm-hmm. that real ideal idealized nature and I I, I think that it's it was something that you said um Tony Morrison also also critiqued was the mm-hmm. the state of nature romance um, for its indifference towards social reality so I, I wondered if you wanted to talk a little bit about the universal wilderness as it as it um pertains to the african american perspective as well
0: that's right yeah and, and i thank you for bringing that up um tony morrison um tony morrison was a very avid critic of, of essentialism in in all of its forms and and um i i think a lot of listeners will probably remember that in the in the 80s and early 90s there was a all this controversy surrounding the writer Alice Walker um, uh, who wrote the color purple, because um, a lot of, um, a lot of uh, black men novelists or other writers uh, were, were kind of accusing her of, of painting the black community writ large in in a negative light because she was dramatizing um, domestic violence. Um, And, and, you know, the kind of argument was essentially that, you know, You know that 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 it hurt the cause of 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 of, of, um of black liberation. That it um, that it that and that it was not representative of who uh, black Americans are. Um, And a lot of other women, uh, black women uh, writers, rose to Alice Walker's defense. Um, Of course, from a feminist perspective, you know, a black feminist perspective specifically. You know, with the line, you know, we can critique um, racial violence in the United States, but we also need to critique gender violence, you know, and, and, and part of this response, and Toni Morrison was part of that response among among a, a lot of other uh, Black women writers, and, and part of that was, was a critique of, of saying, listen, you know, to be uh, to be identified, whether self-identified or by another, as belonging to a certain race, does not mean just one thing, right? It cannot mean just one thing. Um, and, and kind of central to that debate was was a critique of, of, of racial essentialism um, in, in, in kind of from that direction. And um, in the 70s, even, Morrison was writing essays, um, really, really fabulous, phenomenal essays, in which she was, critiquing, um, certain aspects and certain uh, figures in the black power movement for kind of advancing the idea that there was sort of an essential, there was, there was a racial essence, you know, that, that needed to be obeyed, um, or, 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 um, or, 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 or that existed to begin with. Um, and, and, and she, of course, you know, she like, um, like many other black feminists were specifically proceeding from, from the point that to begin with, you know, um, race is not the only axis on which um, identity is debated and, and lived in the United States or elsewhere. Um, and gender is another important one, right? Um, to use just one example. Um, so what I was really interested in Toni Morrison is that she has written um, a decent amount um, uh, I think maybe surprisingly, um, about uh, environment um, she was really interested in she she had a few things to say actually about climate change, which I find, find really interesting, although that's not really what I focus on in the book. I was uh, more interested in how she was interested. She has critiqued kind of the idea of, um, the environment being essentialized, the American uh, wilderness myth, uh, being kind of essentialized in terms of kind of, um, uh, the American national myth. Um, and, and and my argument uh, regarding Morrison is that she has, she tells us a lot about kind of um, interconnections among all kinds of arguments about essentialism in the period the sixties and seventies and eighties um, because in you know I write about Song of Solomon predominantly uh, her novel um, uh, uh, and a few others as well but that one predominantly and, and one of the things I think that novel has to teach us is, is it's bringing it's bringing together several threads uh, of of essentialist rhetoric that she's using the novel to critique. Uh, One of those is environmental in terms of uh, the American wilderness myth as a way of kind of of encoding um, a a national myth, an idea of a national essence. Um, But also um, I think the thing about her that, that keys us into that environmental critique is the fact that she was already critiquing any move toward essentialism in identity politics that's not to say that she didn't think identitarian movements uh, let alone black power weren't important um she found them I- extraordinarily important she was a part of many of them you know she uh, um and, and she found things like um you know community development um community self-determination uh, a lot of the um economic projects that black power activists put together um some of the the most influential and important political projects uh, of the 20th century. But at the same time, um, her her point was basically, listen, we got to critique what we're doing uh, because if we don't, we're liable to fall into pitfalls that are similar to the sort of, um, well, to the sort of uh, pigeonholing that we've been put into before, right? You know, Tony Morrison. Uh, she, she pointed out often places where um, rhetoric of black authenticity in the black power movement was not the same as, but resonated with similar things uh, that, uh, you know, uh, American white supremacy had posited about black, black, black folks. Um, so she uh, was already kind of critiquing essentialist moves and identity movements in general. Even as she found identity movements very important, and that's you know, I, 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 Morrison is sort of uh, the person who grounds something that I write uh, in in the in the in the conclusion to the book, which is basically that you know, and and Kwame Anthony Appiah is is another um, social uh, critic that I find really useful in thinking through this in terms of environment that identity is hugely important in how we talk about and advocate for. Um, environmental policy as well as uh, social politics. You know, identity gets stuff done. You know, identity is central to how we understand environmental injustice. Um, but when you start essentializing it, especially in environmental terms, uh, you almost automatically start leaving people by the wayside. Um, you know, in, in Alice Walker's point, uh, Alice Walker's point was that you know black black women. Are one of those populations that get left by the wayside when you start talking about a racial essence. And my argument is that um, people of color in general, as well as women and queer folks, uh, and, and the particular environmental challenges facing all of these uh, populations, um, get left by the wayside. Um, in many ways, um, and I, this is something that I do suggest in that chapter where I'm talking about Morrison. In many ways, what this identity policy, uh, ecology does is that even as it's proposing to transcend social identity positions, in many ways, it's really just reenshrining white masculinity as kind of the default de facto blank slate, you said, you know, enlightenment position, right? Uh, it's really just enshrining that because it's basically claiming that all social politics not uh, focused on identity positions that aren't related to ecology are artificial. But of course, all the social politics revolving around identity that were happening were, of course, course happening because these identity positions are marginalized relative to white masculinity, right? So in many ways, it ended up just being a roundabout way of re-enshrining white masculinity as as the as the de facto identity position in environmentalism in general
1: yeah that and that's such an important point that we that that we really need to continue to negotiate in recognizing that 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 it's so easy to start essentializing anytime you start talking about something as big as ecology and Mm -hmm. and you and you mentioned uh um and and in the in the inter- in the introduction, you had a really good point on identity that that he talks about in terms of his in in con- context of his workable scripts, where mm-hmm. identity is not a nature but a narrative. It's yeah. an assemblage of impressions, expectations, and adaptations that accrue over time, and they are subject to change as well. Which I think really goes well with with the idea of ecology because it's mm-hmm. ecology is always in a constant flux rather than being a, a static entity. Mm-hmm. Um, before I ask the, 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 our final traditional question though, I just kind of wanted to pop back to, to your conclusion mm-hmm. and, and just ask you what you, uh, I don't know your takeaway with, uh, with with your identification of a neoliberal wilderness, as well as uh, your what 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 you what you think we need as a narrative of subjectivity that's more about consistency rather mm-hmm. than uh, authentic, authentic right. authenticity. Well, if right. you just want to say a few things on on that for a moment,
0: absolutely. Okay, so I'll I'll, I'll elaborate on both of those points. The neoliberal wilderness concept is basically so I I'm, I'm interpreting wilderness as being. That narrative about environment or that myth about environment that posits a clean division between nature and culture. Historically, it's often been interpreted spatially, as I said earlier, right? You know, uh, civilization is the city or the suburb, and nature is over there, right? Civilization is over here, nature is over there. And my argument throughout Wild Abandon is essentially that so in the 1960s, we see how um, interest in psychoanalysis. Enabled that myth to survive despite the rise of ecology. It just shifted the axis from space to, to psyche, right? Uh, th- that division between nature and culture, right? So um, when I say neoliberal wilderness, I'm basically referring to this situation in which um, because in this uh discourse of the identity politics of ecology social forms are dismissed as artificial, that's a way basically of kind of moving critique away or moving responsibility, moving critique away from, for example, um, corporate activity or state activity and moving responsibility for environmental damage away from these things because it's just relegating it to the sphere, sphere of artifice. It's saying oh it doesn't matter anyway. Like that stuff doesn't matter. Um, it's a way of doing that and then putting the burden of environmentalism on the individual to prove their ecological authenticity, to to dissolve their ego and you know become one with the earth, you know. And and that's why I use the the, the term neoliberal here, right? You know, it's a, it's a shifting of criticism and blame from, you know, a a socioeconomic system onto individuals. Right. Um, And, 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 and real about proving their authenticity, right. And consuming the right things such as psychedelics to prove their authenticity. (laughs)
1: Um,
0: So this is kind of that point about though, about how this sort of results in turning a blind eye away from, you know, uh, unsustainable corporate and state um, practice. Um, that's really what you said about consistency. So, so in the conclusion, I, I draw this distinction between ecological authenticity and, and consistency because ecological authenticity is that term I used throughout the book to describe that egoless state that, um, all these writers are, are so fascinated by, um, this idea that, you know, um, the most authentic self isn't a self it's, you know, um, the interconnected globe. We are all one, whatever, what have you. So, interestingly enough, you know, I actually think that that argument, that, that argument or that, that notion of ecological authenticity doesn't necessarily rely on the idea of, of, of ecology not changing. There are a few writers I discuss, I think in the fifth chapter, um, associated with the deep ecology movement, who baldly write, okay, so, you know, will yourself into, you know, becoming the earth, you know. Based on the direction the earth is heading in, you know, we might all end up being radioactive, we might all end up dying. But you know, what does it matter? Because, you know, the earth itself is going to survive and might not look like what it looks like now. I mean, in short, my critique would be that if we don't have any, if, if you view the entire earth as a single interconnected body, that changes then you don't have any principled reason to argue for what changes are beneficial or, 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 um, or um, desirable and which are not, right? Because the extinction of any given species or millions of them doesn't matter because the body will keep on chugging on, right? So this is where that idea of ecological consistency comes in, where I'm saying that, you know, authenticity, this idea of an essence, um, but also, right, to the point about Appia, right, identities matter, Morrison's point, identity positions matter. Um, you know, many times um, identity categories emerge out of violence, racial violence, especially uh, or, or, um, or, or, vi- uh, or, you know, like the fact that uh, the label homosexuality didn't exist until about 150 years ago, right? Because it became a way of labeling a, a deviant identity category um, versus actions. Um, oftentimes identity category emerge out of violence, but they exist. You know, uh, there's, you know, they did emerge, they happened. There's no just dropping them and pretending they didn't. And even though many of them did emerge out of violence, organizing around them often pr- has produced some of the, uh, the most important political advancements of, you know, the past 150 years. Especially thinking, you know, civil rights, you know, an ongoing project, right? By no means finished, but still advancing, right? Um, So uh, the idea of ecological consistency is basically just this notion okay, it doesn't make sense just to suggest that there is kind of, you know, one whole body, whether we expect it to change with all of us dying, you know, or we expect it not to change. Instead, ecological consistency is about saying, okay, we recognize e- the ecosystems as changing, but changing in relatively consistent ways, and not wildly to a point that results in mass extinctions. Right? Because those writers I mentioned, those deep ec- ecological philosophers, they're suggesting: what does it matter? We're all part of the same body, the same identity, anyway. So who cares? Right? In short, you know, we need a way to talk about um, the duration of things without resorting to a rhetoric of essence and that's what I mean by consistency we can recognize certain environments as consistently changing changing but but in in small consistent ways that are that are uh, con- conducive to the continuation of life right and health um, versus ways that are not right and that and that's where that concept comes from
1: yeah, I I really like that. That's that's super. It's just really interesting and a really good way of looking at it in terms of all of the challenges that we're we're facing as we as we look into this next you know half half century or mm-hmm. whatever two thousand fifty or twenty fifty or, or or whatever you know whatever point you want to mark. Um, mm-hmm. having having that idea of consistency is like a is a really good goal, and it gets away from like the idea of like domination or, mm-hmm. or winning or, or something like that but it's it's something more maybe maybe neutral or maybe, maybe more like i don't know peaceful it, or something
0: it gets away from the notion that there is one there was one uh th- th- there's such a thing as environmental purity it gets away from the notion right. that there is one single way to be an environmentalist because any argument about one single way to be an environmentalist is going to ignore the experiences of thousands of people participating in environmental justice movements, for example, all of whom have very different relationships to environment, yet still consistently, right, experience environmental injustices. But and yeah, that that's that's right.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, that's really interesting. And, and thank you so much, um, for, for, for agreeing to, to talk about Wild Abandon. Um, and I know, Alex, we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, but, but before we, we sign off, um, I would just like to ask what, like, what are you up to now? What, what's your next project?
0: So I'm, uh, just really getting started on a second book. Um, uh, it's tentatively entitled Everyday Ecofascism. Um, I've started getting really interested in ecofascism, kind of again one of those happy or, or not so happy accidents, since it's ecofascism, um, where you know I just finished this first book, and I've been thinking about all these stories people have told about environmentally pure identities, and now I feel like everywhere I turn in the news, you know, there's another think piece about how you know extreme right wing figures are increasingly turning. environmental themes, you know, I think a a great example a horrible example um, is um Patrick Crucius, the um El Paso shooter in 2019, uh whose manifesto that he published, um you know, declared quite openly that um he was targeting Latinx people, and that the reason he was doing it was because uh, he was worried about overpopulation from immigration into the United States uh, as a strain on resources and a driver of climate change. Of course, you know, there are all kinds of holes in that reasoning, you know, even looking past, you know, the horrendous thing in itself, such as, for example, the idea that tight, um, you know, um, human rights violating border security is going to protect a given nation from the effects of climate crisis. Uh, being one of them, and and also blaming vulnerable populations for phenomena that you can really mostly trace to wealthy northern uh, nations, right? Um, You know, those are kind of the obvious inconsistencies, but it seems like, you know, now this is becoming a a, a big thing. Uh, What I'm really interested in is, okay, what are some of the um, everyday quotidian ways people talk about environment? That are in fact fueling eco-fascist conclusions or eco-fascist logics. Uh, and you know, if you if you could sum it up, eco-fascism is more or less uh, the idea that um, an environmentally pure community, normally normally defined by national boundaries, is being threatened by an environmentally pure, impure community. Um, and that um, both national and environmental health rely on the eradication of those populations, right? So I'm not actually as interested in that position itself as I am in tracing the sort of cultural narratives of environment that might lead to that conclusion, right? Again, thinking about how do we talk about environment and what are the rhetorical effects of it, um, and and so. On you know one of the chapters in that book is is really going to be building off of what I wrote in this first one um, thinking again uh, about psychedelics right how people talk about consuming psychedelics in a way that often gestures toward um, the extinction of environmentally impure populations,
1: for example Wow well that sounds uh a, a hard topic but super important and interesting and uh. And I guess when you, when you finish that book, we'll have you back on. (laughs) I'd love
0: to, um, you know, hopefully it's, uh, as as you said, it's a heavy subject. Hopefully we'll have, we'll have positive developments to talk about too.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much for, for the interview and, uh, and, and goodbye.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me.